0: Welcome to the special Good Friday stream. I mean, Good Friday special. The stream is a basically a normal Q&A. Our first question for today is from Glenn Lawrence, who asks, what is your opinion on how feminism is impacting the modern church? And I I definitely have some, some opinions on this. I think it's actually a very deeply concerning impact, but we have to start by defining feminism. Um, this is actually a really big deal. Uh, I actually posted on Twitter, and you guys can go to my Twitter if you want to. It's, it's Mike Winger II. That's my at Mike Winger II Twitter thing. And you can see all the responses. I, I said, hey, how do you define feminism? And what's interesting is in all these responses, almost nobody actually defines feminism, but they do describe how they think it's affecting the world or, or themselves in both positive and negative ways. So let me just start by saying this um I'm not on the fence on the topic, but I want to avoid confusion on the topic. There was a um college professor who or it may have a high school professor I had a student come and tell me I don't remember whether they were in high school or college that the teacher um I think it was high school, yeah, I think it was i think. It was Downey High School. Anyways, I could be wrong. This is a while back. Uh, The teacher says to the students, uh, raise your hand if you're a feminist. And the students kind of scattered. Some raised their hands, some didn't. And then the teacher said, hey, raise your hand if you think that women should have equal pay for equal work as men do. And everybody raised their hand. And then the teacher turns to them and says, you're all feminists. So the teacher here in this case defines feminism as women should have equal pay for equal work, important that we have that qualifier there. Um, and like in that case, I'm a feminist, you're a feminist, we're all feminists. Of course, that's, that's not feminism though. That's not what feminism actually is, but it's what it is to somebody. And so when I talk about the harmful effects of feminism on the church, here we have question one, there's a counter going up. Um, someone could think I'm talking about how women shouldn't get equal pay for equal work. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is that's confusion. Someone else said they, they, they loved feminism because it allowed them to go to a university and get a career and have a career. Um, and I thought, okay, so they see feminism is the thing that opens the doors for opportunities for me to pursue a career I want. And there may be an impact that's related to feminism there, but that's not what feminism actually is, certainly in the modern sense. So there's been... If you count them, there's been approximately four waves of feminism. And we're going to talk about how this affects a biblical worldview in a second. Um, I'm not going to give you a whole overview of all feminism, just briefly here, right? The first wave of feminism ended about 1920-ish, and it ends with suffrage, the right to vote. And then you have the second wave of feminism that hits in the 50s to the 70s, approximately. And and then you have, and and now there's other issues that are being considered, right? It's not just, in fact, some of the second wave feminists the the original first wave feminists would, would argue with each other probably and disagree on what their actual principles and beliefs and standards are then you have third wave which extends feminism quote beyond and I, who am i quoting just someone who was talking about <laughs> beyond white middle-class american women's concerns and now you have in my opinion where feminism in, starts uh, incorporating intersectionality and critical theory and that sort of thing and this is where it starts turning into something or it starts revealing that it's something different than what a lot of people think when they say I'm a feminist. Um, then there's fourth wave feminism, which literally right now it is a genuine live debate in feminism: what is a woman in the first place? Should we def- should we say that a woman is you know associated with biological gender, or should we just say it's purely a social construct? I read an article in prep for this question uh, from Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Okay, this is a very prestigious, very well respected source. And in it, they, they go through feminism's definition of of a woman and how it's just a live debate. We're not really sure exactly how we define it in this in the feminist movement at this point. And this is because old feminists and new feminists aren't in agreement exactly. And new feminists, it seems, are the ones winning out, it seems to me. And that is a problem. So let me tell you first the good of feminism and then we'll talk about the, a lot of bad Good of feminism is um, it may open doors of opportunity, right? It may actually open good, healthy doors of opportunity for women where they might have had barriers put up artificially keeping them from doing things. Um, Doesn't mean that every opportunity is a good opportunity for a woman. (laughs) Doesn't mean that it does mean that it's, this is a good benefit. I think there's a positive thing. Uh, Another positive thing feminism with feminism is the um, highlight of, the suffering of women under abuse a that's a good thing okay this is something i care a lot about as a guy who spent many years as a domestic violence counselor and i know that women are disproportionately affected by that they're the victims of that far more often than men are and usually worse not always there's men who are total victims of domestic violence domestic abuse but more often it's women and feminism helps right it assists in highlighting the, the the issues of women suffering it's in the workplace or in the home and things like that and I think that that's a good thing uh, but it also turns into like The I believe her movement where you uncritically believe any Accusation made as long as a woman makes it. Okay. That's not a positive thing, right? This is an over overreaction um, <clears throat> So that yeah, that's feminism. These are positive things, but are they the core of feminism? No um, Feminism does encourage fair treatment of women. Some would say actually unfair treatment at this stage the current stage of feminism But as far as it encourages fair treatment, I think that that's a good thing and it also encourages men to feel like they should treat women with integrity. Although I would argue that an old school Christian complementarian view of men and women, it encourages the same things. But then you guys can check out my Women in Ministry series to see as I build the case going through all the scriptures and all this stuff to talk about that sort of thing. So that's the good. Let's talk then about the bad. Because there's more bad than good. I'm sorry to say at, at the moment. It, my 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 estimation. But here's the reasons why. These are these are like metrics you can count on. Okay, feminism is very much about abortion, very very much about abortion. You um, nowadays, if you call yourself a feminist, but you're not pro-choice, you are probably going to be told you're not really a feminist. Right. That this is considered a women's rights issue to to kill your own child. Okay. This is this is a human life that you've conceived. It's not your body. It's your baby, right? But you don't, you don't have right of life over someone else's life. In this case, your offspring, um, any more than a mother has the right to strangle her baby in the crib. That would be, that would be murder, you know? And so it's the same thing here, but feminism, the, the belief of feminism, whatever's driving it, whatever the core is, however you want to define it, it is entirely inextricably linked to pro-choice pro-abortion movements. That is entirely the case. I don't know of, of, of any good evidence that there's any significant pushback within the feminist movement on that issue. If, if it's there, I'd like to see it. I've never seen it personally, and I think most of you probably haven't either. Um, marriage, on on feminism, modern feminism, marriage is an oppressive structure to women. I say that because because I mean biblical marriage. I mean God's view of marriage. Okay, As I've gone through the Women in Ministry series, and you guys can check that out. I'll link it down below since I'm mentioning it now. It's a massive series, ongoing. I got two more videos to do in it, but that series has revealed um, very much so that marriage is something that God orchestrates, He institutes, and He does have role differences for men and women in marriage. Feminism is is inevitably current modern feminism totally opposed to a biblical view of what marriage is. That is, they see the male role as oppressor. Like when I say male role, I mean. That biblical role that God gives to males, to men in the marriage, that is not meant to be oppressive, not meant to be cruel, that is meant to be self-sacrificial and loving, but is in a leadership role in the marriage, that role is inherently oppressive because it's seen as having some kind of more authority than the wife. So then that's inherently oppressive. Then the woman's role, where she's told by Paul, like, you know, hey, yield to your, 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 your husband, submit, that this is something that God's calling you to do, not to abuse, no, no, to, to his godly leadership. This is something that's seen as inherently oppressed. And so the, the biblical idea of marriage is reframed as oppressor and oppressed. And this is, um, I, I don't know how to stress how important this is. I don't think it's a gospel issue. I don't think you're unsaved if you don't get it right. That's not what I'm saying. But it's so important because it affects your marriage. And let me just put it this way. You guys that are married, how important is your marriage? Really, really important. It's it's of prime importance. It's of immeasurable importance. And feminism undermines the nature of your relationship in marriage. Um, so, th- the feminism is also part of what's given rise to the egalitarian movement, which I will say now that I've gone this far in my series, which is not a biblical thing. And it is ultimately, as, as many as there's godly, otherwise godly, well-intentioned, Christ-loving believers in the egalitarian movement, I think that they're fundamentally undermining. Um, marriage in its roles, not in its existence, but in its roles and, um, <clears throat> and, and affecting God's plan for the church. So that, so that's obviously a big deal that comes with the rise of egalitarianism seems to rise with feminism. Not that they're, they're the same thing, but they definitely feminism has had an impact in the church in this way. I believe, um, the, um, the issue of modesty is affected by feminism. Modern feminism sees modesty as oppression. It's fine if you want to wear something that's modest, but if society is trying to tell you that you're supposed to not show that much cleavage or something, then that is inherently oppressive on the part of society. So modesty, which is seen, uh, modesty, not only in, cause biblically modesty is not just about showing less skin. It's also, and that is part of it, but it's also about, um, not showing off wealth, not trying to display really expensive things in your in your hair in your in your jewelry um that sort of thing so it's 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 in your clothing like wearing like a $5000 suit that's immodest in a biblical sense and so it's all of those things but feminism would be opposed to all of that idea of modesty that we see in scripture um in feminism it seems women are to view their their sexuality their self-determinism as empowerment as empowerment rather than a stewardship god sees it as a stewardship something that you want to you want to honor the lord with um the, the feminism seems to see it as as a a power or a liberty to be flexed so that you can have some sort of fullness of personhood something like that um <clears throat> so yeah that's kind of messed up <laughs> um then, so modesty, marriage, family, um, also selfish pursuits are encouraged on, on feminism. This is a side effect of feminism. I don't think it's the hard the core of the issue, but it's a side effect is that pursuing a self fulfilling life that's often measured by your your career, your um, your sense of personal empowerment that that becomes <clears throat> too central in a person's life, and I think this is bad for men or women. Okay, so sometimes feminists would view men as pursuing these. These these uh, these these sort of great things like career and stuff like that. And then women is sort of being sort of kept in their place. And then liberating women is, of course, letting them pursue those things as well. But I don't think that we should view any of these things this way. I don't think men pursuing a career is the great thing that they're I think the great thing they do is fatherhood and and being a husband and a career is how you put food on the table. It's not how you find your self-identity and make your mark in life, unless, of course, you're pursuing a career that serves others. In which case, it has nothing to do with how high up in the company you get. It has to do with the benefit and blessings you bring to others. In other words, effectively ministry. Now, you can have a job outside the church, but you're serving others, you're blessing them, and that's different. <clears throat> but uh, personal pursuits of like raising up in the ranks and stuff like that, that, that seems to be promoted too much in, uh, in feminism. But then there's the the current feminism, third wave or fourth fourth wave feminism, some would some would call it. I don't want to argue about the waves. Let's just say this, current modern day feminism on a scholastic level. You may not think of it this way because you're just thinking feminism is like kind of however I gut my gut feels about it. But on a scholastic level there's people who are writing feminist stuff. Like there's a feminist hermeneutic. There's those who approach the Bible with feminism in in mind, principles in mind that are actually unbiblical in some cases. And then they read the Bible that way and it distorts the scripture. Um, then this leads to other things like uh, liberation theology, which sounds nice, but has major issues. Th- that's like the scholastic side of feminism affecting the study of scripture. But it also, on the scholastic side of feminism, it's connected to something called critical theory. Critical theory, you've probably heard of critical race theory. This idea of putting people into classes of oppressor and oppressed. But this it goes much farther than that. Feminism is, is linked to at the roots at the core to critical theory in its different branches so that means that feminists nowadays are becoming opposed to what they call heteronormativity uh opposed to um old school gender ideology and they want modern gender ideology so then they're supporting homosexual acts and lifestyles and the approval um, and endorsing of homosexual relationships they're also feminism is also endorsing trans identities And all sorts of things in that area. So this is to me a lot of red flags. Uh, Feminism, it might mean something good to you personally, or you may find one of the side effects beneficial in your life of feminism. Oh, here's a good piece of it that helped me. Like if it wasn't for the advances of feminism, nobody would have listened to me when I cried I was being abused. And they listened and I was helped. And then it's like, yay, that's good. But you can also recognize that like... Let me give you a really extreme example. Let's say you're driving down the street and you get a flat tire and you're stranded and you're worried you're going to die of exposure in the middle of wherever desert or something. And some guy comes and he helps you. He takes his own spare tire. He replaces your tire. He gets it all set up and he sends you on your way. And you think, that's a great guy. He totally impacted my life in a huge, helpful way. Later, you find out his name is Jack the Ripper. (laughs) And you go, wait a minute, but but he was good to me. He was so nice to me. Oh, how do I reconcile this with, with how evil he is? Um, you don't, you just go, Hey, here's a nice benefit, but at the core, there are things that are overarching, too problematic for any Christian to embrace. That's, that's modern feminism and you're welcome to dig it up more on your own. That's just some of my thoughts on this. I think that, that, um, everything I've shared is things that why I, well, I could get into them in more detail. Um, it gives you a, a background a, a beginning look at least at how I would say in these measurable ways, marriage, family, um, the, the downplaying the, the considering of the female role as inherently oppressive this is why a lot of you women feel embarrassed when they find out you don't you, you you don't have an outside job, you work at the home and you take care of your kids and you feel embarrassed because they've downplayed your role as though it's oppressed you're being oppressed um, that's horrific to me and um, <clears throat> those types of things selfish pursuits being encouraged um, and then trans ideology and hetero heteronormativity being a bad thing, all these types of things, are now part of feminism deeply concerned about that let's go to the next question this is from um, anonymous says mike i'm greatly blessed by christ through you uh thank you i'm encouraged to hear that uh praise god for your ministry what are your thoughts on the necessity to be ordained into ministry can i turn my home study into a church um i think that being ordained into ministry is not necessary you said necessity i'll just be careful to point out that word you used, necessity. Is it necessary that you're ordained to do ministry? I don't think so. Is it good? Yes. Is it healthy? Yes. Is it is it an ideal to aspire to? Absolutely. Those things are all true. Um, but we do have lots of examples in scripture. Uh, well, we have examples that go both ways. So <clears throat> Paul um, he was, or, he was ordained. I mean, ultimately by the Lord directly, nobody ordained him. It was the church who found out afterwards. So he could be an example of someone that's like, who ordained you, Paul? And he's like, Jesus. <laughs> and imagine if you said this to someone in your, your local community, like God just called me to do this. I'm doing it. Um, they might think you're being arrogant, but I'm saying it's at least possible that that is in fact the case. Um, but then Paul did not normally go around and just tell people ordination is not important. He laid hands on people he gave rules about who could be an who who could be an elder. And he used the term laying hands, you know, do not lay hands on that person uh, too quickly. Um, you know, if they're a novice, because then they could be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is what he he writes to Timothy. So, so laying on hands is the norm, the normal way of doing things, um, ordaining and, and having them approved and going through like that, that process is the normal way I'd say it's very healthy because there are those who don't realize that their own desire to be an elder to be a pastor to be a ministry is a pride and blindness issue and i'm not saying everybody's like no no i'm just saying i have met people who are like this where a guy uh comes up and goes first time he's at the church goes to the pastor and he says hey i'd like to teach i mean i'm called to be a pastor too i'm called to be a teacher too and there's like all these red flags that are very obvious to everybody else about the about the person you're like oh like maybe you need to at least attend the church a little more first. We don't even know who you are. You're just sort of self-appointing your, yourself here. That does happen. So that's a concern. Um, can you turn your home study into a church? I think, yes, you can. In this case, I would say that in if you're sort of outside the umbrella of a larger church organization, because you have a home study, and you're just not really connected to another, another church, then you would look to the people in the church to be the ones who affirm you as the leader. And you'd say, hey, you know, are you guys... Are you guys sensing this call? And you have a really honest conversation about it. You know, here's the, the call I think God is 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 showing I have in my life. Here's the thing I'd like to do. Do you think I'm qualified for this position? Do you have any questions? And you'd seek for at least that affirmation from the people so that you're not just a guy rogue. Anyway, I hope that those are some things that help. Uh, let's go to the question three. The illustration corner says, hi, Pastor Mike, We uh, will we be taken to heaven during the second coming? Or will God's kingdom come to earth to reign? It seems odd to create earth for him to just destroy it and bring us to his domain. Okay. So I am a pre-millennial. Okay. So, uh, this is not talking about when I was born right? because I'm not, um, uh, well, I guess I, I am technically pre Anyway, here's the thing. Pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. These are different views of when, of the timeline of Jesus coming back, um, In my view, and I'm going to answer from my perspective, and I may could one day change this, right? This is, this is not a primary issue. It's important, but it's not primary. And Christians can disagree on these issues of the timing of Jesus's return and the timing of all these little pieces. So we have things like, um, the second coming us, us going to heaven and then this thousand year reign on earth, and then a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is my overview, maybe help answer the question, my overview for how I understand things, and I think as a generally pre premillennial people like myself, will have this perspective. And this is not a brand new view, uh, there were premills back in the day, um, Papias um, is said to have been premill, this guy was like second century, um, <clears throat> so yeah, like the Didache reads like a premill document, that's like 95 AD, so this is, I'm not saying it's right because it's old, just letting, those of you know that it's old, Who who... Uh, might have heard otherwise <laughs> anyways so the premial position would say this um Jesus is his second coming ha- happens and he brings raise you know at, at some point here I'll, i'm gonna avoid the issue of the rapture here wherever you put that um he raises the the dead to life who are in Christ he brings those who 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 are are following around the world together and they live in a Christ-ruled world for a thousand years. This world, this same world, just ruled by Jesus for a thousand years. After that thousand years is over, now whether you take that to be exactly a thousand, literally a thousand, let's just say a thousand years in some reasonable sense, after that thousand years is over, then there's the final judgment. Okay, so that the the, the unsaved dead are raised so that they can be judged. Everybody stands before God. And then the world, heaven, earth, everything, everything, is remade, right? It's destroyed and remade. Um, Kind of like uh, when you send stuff to a recycle place and it recycles it, completely breaks it down and then makes it something new. Um, There's some debate as to whether God gets rid of the universe and everything in it and then makes a new one or if he sort of reworks everything that currently exists. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that kind of question. Um, It's interesting, but at any rate, a new heaven and new earth show up wherein righteousness dwells and then we are with Jesus on that new earth Where heaven and earth meet this is not like jesus ruling in the current earth this is a new earth that's probably better in a lot of ways and we're physically on that earth with jesus physically and spiritually there's the new jerusalem where heaven and earth now meet that's what the new jerusalem means in 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 many ways in the book of revelation is it's heaven's you know how we think of heaven as god's dwelling right there's a distance between us and him uh, humanity and him in general not not those who are filled by the spirit but But there will be then heaven meeting earth. The new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and God's dwelling is with man. He will be with them. He will be their God. There's no even need for sun. Doesn't say there is no sun. Says there's no need for sun because he is the light. So his presence will be so present that it will light the place up. So that that to answer your question. You said, will we be taken to heaven during the second coming or will God's kingdom come to earth to reign? His kingdom will come to earth to reign. Here's the, here's where will we be taken to heaven during the second coming comes in. Those who die now, I believe, are already in God's presence, waiting for their new bodies, um, being comforted by the Lord. To, they're absent from the body. They are present with the Lord, just like Paul was hopeful would happen to him. And the um, the question is, if you put the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, then you have the saints up With in heaven with jesus during that seven year period if you put and this is only for pre-mills even is there a debate about when this happens but if you believe that if you and if you believe the tribulation is like a literal seven years um if you put the rapture in the middle of the middle of the tribulation that seven years then you have us in heaven with the lord until the second coming when we come with him and we have new bodies and everything and then if you put the rapture at the time of the second coming then we don't really spend time in heaven those who are alive when Christ returns, we just get transformed and we live right away on the new, um, in the new kingdom of, not the new heaven and earth, but the new kingdom, thousand year reign. I've probably confused some of you guys. I have a, I have a video on, uh, I think it's four different views, Christian views of revelation. And I go over kind of big picture, some of these differences. I hope I didn't cause more confusion with that answer. I'll link that video down below, my video on different views of revelation, things that Christians can debate on. Only one of them is totally heretical. And I talk about that as well. Um, Question number four. Javier G says, I was wondering if a couple is married and one of them is seeking an unbiblical divorce. Does that give them the right to start dating other people before the divorce is finalized? No. (laughs) I mean, put it this way. Let Let me put your question back to you a little different way. Um, I'm married to my wife and she wants to separate from me, which is so bad, right? Because she's separating and divorcing from me in a, without justification in an unbiblical way and we belong together. So because what she's doing is so bad and we belong together, I'm going to start dating this girl over here. I'd say that even the desire to do this shows there's something really wrong going on and the person should really seek some counseling. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It could just be... A somebody who's a believer who's committed to biblical truth who can help them work through some of these complicated emotions because I'll tell you what when you're going through that kind of craziness like your spouse is divorcing you feels like your life is being ripped into pieces you need people to be the anchor for you and to help you during those times and you need those to be people who a care about you and b won't affirm you in everything you do so they have to care about you so that they don't just disregard you and set you aside and 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 have no compassion for the things you're going through but they have to not affirm you in everything you do because you're going to be you're in turmoil you're in a dangerous time you know when we're in a lot of stress we think of wild things to do that are not always healthy and wise and somebody who loves the lord is going to be there to care about you but also say hey you need to slow down this is a bad idea do this instead and yeah um i can't think of any way to answer that your question other than a big no You said, I was wondering if a couple is married and one of them is seeking an unbiblical divorce. Does that give them the right to start dating other people before the divorce is finalized? No, no, they need to redouble their affection to their spouse and seek every way they can to reconcile the divorce isn't finalized, especially, especially now, like seek that start listening again. Here's the advice I would give to most couples who are experiencing major problems without knowing the details of their individual issues is Chances are the stuff your spouse has been complaining about for a long time. Some of it's probably true and you've stopped listening. And that's probably true on both sides. And that would be a starting point for a lot of people, in my opinion, just based on some practical experiences with different couples. All right, we'll go to question five and we got all 20 questions for today. So I'm fully questioned out. Um, But here we go. This is from Magma Mellon. Who says, hi, Mike, I love the work you do. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm fifteen, and my best friend at school is a Muslim. Do you have any advice for trying to evangelize Muslims um, who are intelligent and rational, but very set in their ways? So I think here's good advice for evangelizing anybody who's committed to a religious belief system is to learn about their belief system so that you can under- you can understand them, they can understand you, but also you could leverage the 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 things that they hold to. In, in ways that lead them to Jesus Christ. And so some examples could be that in, in Islam, Jesus is considered a prophet. So this is different than in, in some other religions um, where Jesus would be considered like a, a threat, right? Jesus is a prophet in Islam. And so there's like an open door there. It's like, let me talk about Jesus. He, you say he's a prophet. Let's look at his words. There are places in um, in um, Islamic writings. I think it's in the Quran that says that the um, Oh man, I'm I trying the to terminal the terminology here really matters specifically the terminology um, But it speaks about the, the the New Testament as being God's Word um, Oh man, you know for this I, I, I Should be careful. I, I don't want to say this wrong because it gets into a whole debate and I, I don't want to launch you magma melon into a debate with with fuzzy information, but you can study what the Quran says about the Bible and you can use this as a bridge to understanding the Bible more, um, helping them understand the Bible more, like helping them see the value of the scriptures. But Muslims are also taught that the Bible is very corrupt. okay? So it's not necessarily in the Quran, right? But they're taught they have to teach this. They have to be taught that the Bible' is corrupt because the Bible totally refutes, as it stands, refutes Islam in a lot of different ways. Um, Islam teaches that that Jesus was never even put on the cross. He wasn't crucified. He didn't die. Now, you could say, hey, let's look at historians. Um, historians actually would say that um, Jesus' death by crucifixion under Romans like Pontius Pilate, it is one of the most certain facts of history. Think about that. Not only does the Bible say it happened that way, it seems to be one of the most certain facts of history. Muhammad, who came over 400 years later, He wrote down, it didn't happen that way. Why would I believe that? Why would I believe that? Because that same author says that the New Testament here is, is God's word. So then they go, oh, it's been corrupted, but they can't actually point to the, this is where it gets beyond probably a normal 15 year old, at least, you know, they can't actually point to the textual corruption in the actual documents we have that represent our new Testament. They can't point to the corruption. There's there's no textual critic I've ever heard of on the planet who would suggest that the New Testament there there was ever a version of the New Testament that didn't have the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. Uh, these are these are not debatable things as far as textual corruption is concerned. So, things to think about. But with your friend, um, man, uh, yeah, learn more about Islam. Do some Googling on this. Islam's not my not my area of focus. I haven't spent as much time on it as I have on other things. Um. David Wood has done a lot on Islam. You can type David Wood Islam, but it's very snarky. I wouldn't I wouldn't approach your friend with the same snark. You could you could, however, learn some facts that might help you in witnessing to them. Um, uh, what was the other thing I was going to tell you? Um, be aware of their heart. Um, at, at the end of it, Islam is it, it doesn't really teach that God is love the way Christianity does. Um, and so they have a, a different view of God. They also have a view of salvation or of dealing with sins that amounts to, like, are you good enough? It's not ultimately a grace based like Jesus. So you don't have the goodness of God ultimately in his love, and you don't have the incredible grace of Jesus. So recognize that your friend's heart, in a sense, is probably crying out for those things. So yeah, um, man, I wish I could give you more advice, Magma Melon, but I, I need to do more on Islam for my own sake in this regard. Yeah. The other thing I would actually encourage you to do, uh, I'll add to this, is actually to read the Qur'an. Um, I know some of you guys are like, don't tell her to read the Qur'an! But, <clears throat> here's why. There's nothing in the Qur'an that's going to convince you to be Muslim, okay? It's not that kind of book. Um, it's very difficult to read, it's organized oddly, so the, so the opening chapters of the Qur'an are the longest ones, and it's for the most part, the book is organized longest chapter to shortest. Imagine if you did this with like the with the books of the Bible. I'm gonna organize them longest book to shortest book, you know. And you've got like Jude and like uh, Amos, <laughs> uh, Obadiah. You know, you've got like these short books at the end, and then you have these really long. But then it would be so disjointed. Well, the Quran's like that, except the Quran's not even books; it's just chapters. So the chapters are like in different chronological orders. It's very difficult to figure out what's going on. But as you read it, it will be obvious to you that it's a very human, human book. So there's a, there's a part in there where Muhammad writes as you're reading the Quran you'll see it Muhammad writes that um oh yeah you guys asking seriously <laughs> my finger um I smashed it that's all I smashed it you should have seen it like a week ago it was like all blue <laughs> the whole finger was so I smashed it here I got a little bit of a blood blister here there you go uh no big deal I'm super manly so I didn't even feel it okay so what was I saying in the Quran um, you have this interesting stuff where, like, Muhammad says, um, God told me to tell you that when you come over to my house and you have dinner with me, you can't stay and ask questions about God. You have to go home because I'm tired. I didn't say it. God told me to tell you that. I kid you not, that is in the Quran. <laughs> like, this is very obviously was written, you know, Muhammad's like, these people are bugging me asking me all these questions i don't necessarily know the answers to i have a revelation this is exactly how joseph smith did it right joseph smith is the same way he's like oh i have a revelation uh god wants your wife to become my wife oh (laughs) and so they put their desires in god's mouth muhammad wanted at one point in history muhammad wanted to marry a girl he had many wives as as a lot of false religious leaders do they have many wives um and that's the difference between, say, Christianity and these other belief systems, because we look at even the men in the Bible who were polygamists, and we say that was bad, right? But Jesus, of course, is gives us a different example, and the Bible actually teaches a, a, a different standard of one man, one woman. But a lot of these false religions, they have lots of um, lots of women because it was ultimately a man pursuing his lusts in the form of religious commands. So Muhammad had a, a revelation thing where he, he wanted to marry. Uh, his son, his adopted son's wife. And as I recall, um, what happened was they're like, well, you can't, you know, you can't do that because he's your son. That's incest, if, even though he's adopted. So Muhammad came up with a new revelation. Well, God has just showed me something. God has showed me that adoption is not something he respects. Adoptions don't count anymore. There, There is no adoption. And so he, he didn't just disown his own adopted son. He... Abolished adoption. There are countries, Muslim-influenced countries now, where adoption's not allowed because Muhammad wanted to sleep with this girl who was married to his uh, his adopted son. Those are things that you might be able to bring up and appeal to them to sort of realize the difference between Jesus and Muhammad. Um, I feel like I feel like my answers to you is, is only like thirty percent helpful. So I hope there's something there that you find useful. There's a lot more as you study it. You'll learn. Wesleyan wannabe says, looking at Ephesians 531, should a Christian man move out of his parents' house before trying to date to prove they can provide an income and a house? Ephesians 531. Here's the text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Okay. So this is a quote from Genesis that a, a man will leave his father and mother, um, Is it a statement that applies. Okay, it's it's not directly about moving out of your house before you start dating. Um I think okay, let me tell you what I think it is about, and then we'll try to apply it to the question you have. So I, I think what this is about is um the 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 man's leaving one family and he's starting a new family. And his allegiance and his focus is on his new family. Okay, so it's he's not about his when there's a conflict, we'll put it this way, between the well-being of his parents versus his wife and kids, he chooses his wife and kids. This is his this is his family, his primary concern now. Before that, he would need to choose his parents. Now this doesn't mean he casts off his parents and oh, I don't have to help you. I'm married now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if there was like if there was that extreme situation, let's say that your 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 mom keeps ragging on your wife. Oh, she this and that, and she's always ragging on your wife and causing all sorts of conflict in your home because your mom is constantly ragging on your wife and you're in the middle of it. Um, In those moments, you have to say, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pick my wife. You can't, you can't come in here and do this. mom. (laughs) I'm picking my wife. And I love this. Like my mom, my mom's great with this, right? She knows. That not that there's things to complain about. Don't read into this more than what I'm saying. But she knows not to sit and, and complain and gripe about my wife because she knows that my allegiance is to my wife. Right. And my wife also doesn't gripe and complain about my mom. So that's the same. Don't don't get weird about it. But you get what I'm saying? that there, There's an, a sense in which there's a, a leaving of uh, a leave and cleave thing, right? Leave father, mother, hold fast to wife to become one flesh this to me says that the the priority and the focus and the familial commitment is to is between husband and wife above that which is there between son and parents i think that would also apply to women okay women are, well it just says a says, hey, man will leave father but it doesn't say the woman has to leave father i think that you're just you're 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 causing trouble when you say stuff like that but um i think you missed the point does it mean that a guy has to move out of his parents house in order to demonstrate that he has enough financial ability to take care of his, his wife. Um, that wasn't something that seems to be standard in the ancient world. This isn't something that they would have necessarily read into it. Um, you may well have stayed in your parents' home very close to the time until you got married. You might have actually still lived in in the same home. There might have been a multifamily home, and nobody, I think, would have looked at that and thought badly of it. So it, I just think this is a bit... It's not like it's bad if a guy moves out of his parents' house and has the to prove he can provide that's a good thing but I wouldn't make it a necessity. imagine telling poor people they can't get married right because they're living in poverty and while they're doing everything they can to provide it's maybe they're not living in the US with all the opportunities I've got Maybe they're living down in Mexico where we would we would go down with groups from our church and build little tiny what you would consider as a sad tiny little house that was so much better than the cardboard and aluminum they had just leaned up against each other that, th- that they were using for their homes before um yeah this is this is where it, it makes it difficult and I want to have grace to people and say yeah a guy needs to try to provide and take care of his family um, a woman also has to try to provide it to her best as well but I don't want to make too hard of a rule that doesn't apply. That scripture doesn't clearly teach and doesn't apply well across different sort of financial um, environments. All right, let's go to the next question. Um, I hope my doorbell stops ringing soon. Go away. All right, this is question seven. Um, There we go. Michael or Michaela Ryan says, my sister walked away from God because she begged for direction in her life. And she says she heard nothing from God. This led her to believe God does not care about her. How do I respond to this? Um, So I I have several thoughts all running through my head at once. For one is, um, it's heartbreaking your sister walked away from the Lord. And it's understandable that you want to like prove to her that God, whether whether she believes that God doesn't exist or more likely what you said is, she believes God doesn't care about her. Um, you want her to see this, but she's—I think she might be going off the wrong metric. I'll give you a story from my 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 history. Okay, so this was a sister of mine who has actually has passed away, um, um, due to uh, all sorts of lifestyle things that that, yeah, bad stuff, wild and crazy stuff. Um, she had had her her son taken away from her by the state at one point and i was like i don't know i was like 14 15 at the time but i was like the only one in my family who was overtly christian that i, that I was aware of anyways um who was like openly i'm a christian like i'm gonna walk around with the bible and stuff and i mean i mean my my own parents my mom and my stepdad thought it was weird my dad tried to talk me out of it okay this is this is the situation so she gets me on the phone and she's like michael um uh, maybe i was 15 or 16 something around there and um my nephew could tell me and um cuz he'd remember she says they're taking my son away i keep praying and praying and praying but god's not doing anything i keep praying and praying but god's not helping why isn't god helping and i didn't i didn't at that age i didn't have the guts to say like you're being lame <laughs> which was true you're being lame. You're not taking personal responsibility. Like you caused this problem with drugs and all sorts of neglect and all kinds of harm. You have caused this issue. Like you need to face up and not be like God. You're not being my get out of jail free card. Um, and then she was very distraught over this and, and understandably distraught, but but still accountable. And it was you know she caused the problem. I'm not saying your sister's like this. I'm not. I'm not trying to draw a parallel and say your sister's just like this. What I'm saying is that when we're emotional. And when we're in that moment of despair and we're praying like, God, show yourself to me, show yourself to me. It can, there can be a way in which we sort of get like blinders, like, like when a horse walks and it has those blinders and it can't see what's around it, where we don't see the whole situation. And that's what I think may be happening with your sister. She didn't see the whole situation. What's the whole situation? Well, the whole situation is all the times that maybe in her life, God did reveal himself to her and she just wants him to do it again. I found this to be true of myself. I prayed, especially when I was younger and I don't, I don't go through this anymore. Okay. But I did when I was much younger, Lord, show me that you love me. I feel like maybe you don't care about me or don't let me show me. And God shows me like I go to church and there's like this wonderful time of worship. And I really feel like the Lord's ministering to my heart in a very special way. Like not just listening to music. It was like something supernatural. Oh, thank you, God. Or I'm, I go and then I open the word and I just randomly open the word to a spot and it's like, God totally used that verse to speak to me, which normally does not happen. Right. But that, but God did at that point and he responded to those prayers and then it happened again and it happened. And then after a while I realized I was addicted to God constantly affirming his love for me, not because I loved God, not because I trusted God, but because I did not trust God. I needed him to affirm his love over and over because I lacked trust because Imagine someone telling you, I love you a hundred times. And then you say, say it again, or I don't believe it. It means that you doubted every other time. And that could have happened that the other times where she had been aware of God's love, she had been, had been perceiving God's love that she just disregards it. And just now put the blinders go up, but but show me now, show me now, show me now. And God's like, I'm calling you to, to, to like, you know, actually have faith in me and trust what I've told you. The other blinder that might be up is to ignore the cross of Christ. I mean, here it is. It's Good Friday. This is this is the day we commemorate Jesus taking our sin upon himself on the cross. Your sister's sin. He came. He lived a perfect life. He died literally to suffer the punishment for what she has done wrong. I love you. I want to hang out with you is not nearly as loving as saying, I love you. I will suffer for the sins you've committed against me. That's what Jesus did for her. And here she is saying, Lord, unless I feel an emotional spike, I don't believe you love me. And yet Jesus felt the spikes in his hands, right? And the, the crown of thorns digging into his head. And you don't see that as him loving you because you have blinders up because you're in that moment of like, no, just emotionally affirm me, but I will not take a step of faith to trust that What scripture says is true, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that when I was yet a sinner, God demonstrated his love for me and that Christ died for me. So I would point her to the cross and say, look, Jesus on the cross proves God loves you. Now, will you follow him? You just wanted, you wanted an emotional thing to happen right in the moment. You, what you need to do is look at God's steadfast, unchanging love and not test it with your heart, but test it with his sacrifice that he did on the cross. Number eight, Mitchy Stitchy has a question. Um, in Romans 7, 14, is Paul describing his experience before or after he became a Christian? Good question. He just shifted to the present tense, but says he's sold as a slave to sin. Does this differ from Romans 8? This is not a new debate. This is a debate lots of people have been having for a very long time. And um, I'm uh, I'm going to say, well, let, here let, let me read the passage and you guys try to figure it out in your own head. Let's read through a bunch of Romans 7 right now. and Think biblically about it. Um, and you're asking yourself, is Paul talking about his current situation or just when he, before he was saved? Here we go. Yeah, I'm gonna read the whole chapter. <laughs> or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married man is bound by law to her husband, uh, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, if she will be called an adulteress, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had, been, um, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law sin lies dead. I was alive; I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, uh, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then? Bring death to me by no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law is spiritual but i am of the flesh sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that it is good but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Um, so uh, the way I've heard this debate is something like, uh, is this all... Paul describing himself before he was saved, but he's obviously totally different when he's saved. But it it seems to me a little bit difficult to say this. For one, it's hard to say that it's true after he's saved, that all this stuff is true after he's saved, because he's like, I'm a slave of sin. I mean, obviously, he's like, you're not slaves of sin. God's delivered you as Christians. But then he says things that sound like after you're saved. He says, um, verse 22, uh, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. you think that's how he describes the unsaved? Delighting in the law of God in his inner being? That sounds like a renewed heart, doesn't it? Um, what I think it helps me reconcile this the best, if I could summarize it in a way, then you guys can see what you think. Do you think, oh, is it before or after? Uh, I think it's both. Um, I think what Paul's describing is the flesh, is the flesh. That flesh state represents for sure before you're saved. There's a level in which it represents after you're saved because you still have to battle with the flesh. You have to not yield to the flesh. You have to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But guess what? The desires of the flesh are still there. All this not doing what you want to do, all that sin, it's still there. And if you feed it, it grows and it gains more power in your life. And so I think that you delight as a Christian, right? Now you're saved you have a desire to obey God, but you don't find the ability to obey in your flesh because your flesh will always lend towards sin and it will yield towards sin because that's the the law of what goes on in your flesh. But then you are saved. You're given the spirit in Romans eight. Um, and you now can walk in the spirit and now you can find the fulfillment of those godly things by walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. So I think that Paul, let me put it this way, Paul's primarily describing a pre-Christian state, but I don't think that's actually his emphasis. Um, I say primarily because it's not exclusively. I think what he's really describing is a flesh state, but Christians can still be influenced by the flesh. And so that's why I can't cleanly cut off Romans 7 from the Christian experience. You can still be influenced by the flesh. You need to walk in the spirit. And that's what Romans 8 gets into. And at some point, you would say, well, those who walk in the flesh are simply unsaved. And that is true. But that doesn't mean those uh, everybody who ever at any moment walks in the flesh is unsaved, because that would describe pretty much every Christian at some point in time. So there's, there's both are going on there. Um, yeah, that's my view. I'd love to hear your guys' views in the comments on, what do you think about that? This has been a hotly debated topic. Some people make a lot of it. What I would say is, if you hit a passage like this, Romans 7, you're like, I'm not, it's not clear to me whether this is talking about before salvation or if it also has effect after salvation in some way, which I would say in a, in a, in some way, tempered by the spirit and all that. Um, but if you're a little fuzzy on it, what you don't do is you don't invent new doctrine based upon that interpretation of Romans 7. You slow down and say, hey, this is not certain to me, so I'm not going to invent a new theology based on it. All right, let, question number eight, uh, or number nine, rather. Um, this is from Tim Chandler, who says, With extra biblical books such as Enoch or 1st and 2nd Maccabees, just to name some, how do you discern within these books if they're true accounts and if they don't contradict our canon? Thanks. Um, Tim, I would approach them the same way I would approach C.S. Lewis or Josephus. C.S. Lewis would be a modern writer who may be talking about Christianity in different ways. I approach him as scripture over him. When he says things, and they seems to agree with the Bible. I accept it. If he says things, and, and they and re- they disagree, I re- I reject it. If he says things, and they kind of like they're in that middle space where it's like that eh, might agree with the Bible, it might not. It's not really clear whether he's whether it does or not. Then then I consider it possible. Um, with uh, say Josephus, he, here's a first century historian, right? He's writing around the time of, of Jesus um, of of the apostles, um, and Josephus writes history and you just read, you would read like what Enoch says, like you would anything that Josephus writes. Or like, is that accurate? Is that not accurate? You you don't weigh it based upon it being scripture and therefore trustworthy. You weigh it based upon it being everything else. <laughs> so let me give you some specifics. Um, Enoch, we say Enoch, but Enoch is actually a compilation of multiple different works. Some written from very different periods, some written after the time of the New Testament. So would I trust that as history? Mm, not so much not certainly not those portions what about the older portions well i would say there's a reason why it was excluded from the actual old testament another debate some of you out there are very passionate about the book of enoch i i don't think it belongs in our bible um and most christians around the world and throughout time would agree and certainly it seems the jews from even jesus's time would agree um but uh but yeah but then you say well yeah but enoch seems to be referenced in Jude. Well then Jude may be affirming some fact that is also discussed in Enoch. This doesn't canonize the book, nor does it say that all the other facts there are accurate. So you just have to use wisdom. Um, first and second Maccabees, I would take as relative, uh, super interesting, by the way, this gives you details about this intertestamental period and Antiochus Epiphanes and like the, the, the um, consecration of the temple. We get Hanukkah. We get the, the, the Jewish holiday Hanukkah from the events recorded about in those books. Um are they 100% reliable? No. Um do they have some odd theology things in them? Yeah, they do. But they're also super interesting historically and they give you a backdrop to some of the events that happen between the testaments, so that's interesting too. But I I wouldn't take Maccabees as being any more authoritative than um my own my own commentary on stuff, right? Like it's not authoritative. This is just I'm I'm just a, as I've said before, I'm just a normal potato, just a commentator. <laughs> Yeah, that's all i should say about that all right i'll move on um yeah you can take them uh, don't attach mysticism mystical ooh woo woo atta- attitudes towards enoch or first and second maccabees that's where it goes wrong uh number 10 jay towels says hey pastor mike in first corinthians 2 8 is paul referring to earthly rulers or spiritual rulers as he does in ephesians 6 12? 1 Corinthians 2, eight. The Ephesians passage, he talks about um, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual... Uh, what's the term? Well, let's look at it real quick um, since I'm not going to quote it perfectly right. Ephesians 6.12 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, he seems to be here talking about all kinds of spiritual things that they're dealing with. Um, rulers here, I don't think he's talking about human ones exactly. I think he's talking about the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Okay, so I agree with you there. I agree with your your question here, um, Jay Towles, that Ephesians 6 is talking about spiritual things there. and 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What is this talking about? Let's back up a little bit and we'll see what it is they didn't understand. Um, I'm going to back up even a little bit more. They yeah, all start in chapter two, verse one. And oh, sorry. There you go. Uh, and when I came to you, brothers and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling this is not a boast guys. This is Paul was struggling. He was going through all kinds of stuff. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Okay, that's the first moment where we get the wisdom of this age. The rulers of this age, could these be spiritual beings? Could these be human beings? Well, that could be either or. Um, he could describe the Satan's forces as those who were doomed to pass away and who are the rulers of this age. He could also describe um, the rulers of this age being those who are in high places in either religion or politics. He could describe it that way as well. It would work either way. Uh, But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't understand the gospel. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, this is where I I lean towards thinking um, human rulers, maybe more in view, but it seems like this could apply across the board. Like Maybe Paul meant both. Maybe he meant both, human and spiritual. Because would Satan have actually sought to crucify jesus if he understood what harm he was going to bring upon his own kingdom uh no i doubt it i doubt he would have if he had really understood the plan of god i don't know if you guys realize this but yes yes jesus is prophesied yes jesus is thoroughly throughout the old testament there's all these pictures and typologies but it's there in a way that makes the most sense in hindsight when you see what god does you go that's what it was all along and it's like it makes total sense and it connects in a million ways but it wasn't intended to be fully understood certainly by satan um because why would why would he um crucify jesus in that regard and this is something that had to happen for the salvation of mankind so yeah I see it could apply to both um the ones who actually did the crucifying he says they would not have crucified the lord of glory usually when you when you talk about they the ones who actually did the crucifying i don't think here paul tends to be talking it seems like he's talking about demonic forces Even though there was demons behind it, but, but rather when you see the preaching in the book of Acts, right? The ones who were said to have done it in the gospels, the ones who are said to have done it more frequently and more directly are the Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership. So Jews and Romans both of them, the leaders in particular. So you have like the chief priest, you have you have him in, you know, striking and then requesting. And the, you have the Pharisees requesting for Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus, you have Pontius Pilate agreeing. He sends him over to Herod. Herod in a similar way, uh, effectively condemns him, doesn't release him, doesn't help him. And so you have all these sort of Jewish rulers and Roman rulers going against Jesus. So I, I would tend to think verse eight could go both ways, but it's probably more about the human ones. Because of the frequency in which the act of crucifying Jesus is seen to be um, done by human rulers. More as an emphasis than spiritual powers. Okay, let's go to number 11. Uh, or is it number 10? Number 10. Number 11. I can push buttons. Grace Walton says, In 1 Corinthians 13.1, We are told that love keeps no record of wrongs, how do we reconcile this with setting boundaries to protect from abusive behaviors? Right, so um, I think the simple answer is maybe it's the difference between a record of wrong that is purely past, that's why it's a record, versus an a, a an ongoing threat. So a record of wrong is you hurt me before, but that's over. It's just a record. I'm not going to keep that record of that wrong. We've resolved it, it's been dealt with. But an ongoing threat is I am in danger now. (laughs) I'm in danger of being victimized again, being attacked again, being hurt again in, in ways that are extreme and abusive and all this. And that is not a record of wrong. That is a present imminent threat. So that, that simple distinction right there, that that's how I would parse that out. And, um, hopefully that would help people avoid thinking that they should expose themselves to ongoing severe abuse, um, and ongoing threats. Um, this is such a hairy subject because there's always, I know there's someone listening who needs to hear that they can stand up for themselves and they can say, no, I will not submit to this kind of abuse. That's not what submission's for. And there's someone else listening who, um, what they're experiencing is all kinds of very hard relationship turmoil and they're starting to call it abuse and call it spousal abuse or parental abuse or something. And it's not exactly that. But if they call it that, they can justify rebellious attitudes and it's like how do i how do i speak in a way that brings liberty and freedom to this person who's being abused on this side and how do i speak in a way that doesn't encourage um the rebellion of someone who's over on this side who's overplaying what they're experiencing and i don't know how to do that so i that's why i tend to speak slightly vaguely hoping that people will use wisdom and figure these things out um for their own situations mimi Kamanda has a question um What do you think about praying expectantly for a very specific gift in the Holy Spirit? I see people blessed with certain gifts teaching classes. For example, I've seen classes on how to prophesy. Uh. Okay, so these are to me two different questions. Let me separate it the way it is in my head. One question, can I pray that God would give me a specific gift? Separate question, what about training people how to use gifts like a class on how to prophesy to me, very different questions. Um, so can you pray for specific gift? Um, it definitely seems as though you can, you are supposed to desire. So let me, let me actually take you there. Um, just a second. First Corinthians 14, one. Let's look at what it says we're supposed to do here. Um, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So this is not say pray, but I mean, can you pray for the stuff that the Bible tells you to earnestly desire? I think so. I think that's a fair thing. God's like, I want you to really desire spiritual gifts. Oh, can I pray for them then? You know, it's like, yeah, I think that seems like a no brainer to me he says, especially that you may prophesy. So there's like an even a particular gift. But then he lays it out, not because prophecy the loftier gift, but because Paul cares about edifying people. And he knows that of the different gifts, like say tongues, prophecy is so edifying to people that it's more. It's something to desire more because it will bless people the most. And that's what he's focused on. At the end of the chapter, uh, 1439, 1 Corinthians 1439, he says... Um, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, says it again, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Um, Interesting thing for us to think about. (laughs) Don't forbid it. Uh, Didn't say focus on it. He said, don't forbid it. Also, even after offering some, some things in first Corinthians 14 that are meant to slow down people's overuse of gifts. Um, So if anyone does not read it yeah earnestly desire. So I think there's, there's a biblical case that I could say that, like, if I'm told to really desire something then, and it's a good thing, like a spiritual gift, why can't I pray for it? I would say, yeah, you can pray for those things. And that's a good thing to even do. However, what about teaching classes on how to prophesy? I will say this is not exampled in scripture. We do have the closest thing I can think of to it personally that I'm aware of. Okay. I don't, I'm not like, I don't, it's not, it's not like I'm the Bible. Okay. (laughs) My knowledge The only thing that i'm aware of that's the closest to this kind of idea is the phrase school of the prophets in the old testament school of the prophets um and um yeah i'm not sure if i could find it right now oh well um i read a little bit of like some some study on what this phrase meant and who these people were and I think that we're assuming too much. Let me just say this. I think we're assuming too much. If we think that it was like a classroom on how you prophesy first, you do this and then you do that. And here's the things we're supposed to say. And here's the things we're not supposed to say. I don't think that's the case when I look at the new Testament. So I think you can't hang things on the phrase school, of the prophets. I think you're putting, you're pushing too much there. Um, this school may or may not have even been anything like what, what people are assuming. Um, But when you go to the New Testament and you look at the nature of the spiritual gifts, as they're described in the Bible, I see two things that stand out to me in relation to this idea of teaching people how to prophesy. One, prophecy is a gift. It's a gift. The nature of it being a gift, desire to prophesy, but it comes from the Lord and not from you, means that it seems futile to try to teach it to others in that fashion. Like, let me just make you all prophets. Now, this actually is the view of some groups they will treat every christian as though they are a prophet but the bible doesn't say that doesn't say paul doesn't say hey everyone is a prophet and therefore stir it up but rather he's like hey desire the gifts pray for the gifts yeah but it doesn't mean that every single person is doing it now so it just seems weird to like you enroll in a class you're like i'm a prophet now because this whole thing seems like it's it's, it's moving away from the leading of the Holy spirit and into this sort of organized, um, fabricated man sourced prophecy. And that's what we see in some of these movements. And like say Bethel, you see man sourced prophecy all the time, unfortunately. And it's been a, a criticism that I've offered because they're, they're shipping their, their stuff out to around the world. Okay. So it's not like I'm responding to them shipping this teaching around the world. And I think that it's a problem. Um, the other thing we see in scripture is where Paul says something like stir up the gift that is in you. He says it to Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. That was you know, by the laying on the hands of the eldership. Now was that gift prophecy? Probably not. Probably Timothy is some sort of gift of leadership and gift of, of related to his ministry role in Ephesus as, as, as Paul's writing to him in first Timothy. And so he's, he's like in an elder type role, um, really kind of high up elder type role. And it seems to me that that is, that is the thing that he's being told to stir up. But that means that the giving of the gift is the Lord's, although I can desire, even pray for it. But this, the stirring up of the gift, that's something I can do. So it's not as though I just statically sit there. Well, when God wants me to prophesy, my mouth will start moving. Like, that's not what I'm suggesting. So you can stir up the gift. Now, what if somebody was like, hey, those of you who have spiritual gifts, come to this class. We're going to talk about stirring up your gifts. I wouldn't have any objection to that. We're just going to talk about stirring up the gifts. Let's let's just have a time, 10 minutes of just prayer that God would use our gifts to, to glorify him. Let's have like 10 minutes where we talk about things that might be quenching the spirit in our lives because of maybe there's some sin in our lives, some rebellion in our lives. Let's, let's get rid of that. And these to me would all seem to be biblical ways of stirring up those gifts. But when you get to like, say the Bethel example of prophecy must always be encouraging. Prophecy is uplifting. Prophesy even if you're not sure it came from God. No harm done. Like these... Are, that's not okay, as far as that way of teaching prophecy. There's my understanding of it. I, I'm, I'm all, I smile because I'm thinking of all the responses I'm going to get when I say stuff like this, and I'm like, oh, should I say more and clarify more, or just I'll just let it just let it let it go. All right, David Tester says, "Any thoughts on the Anglican Church? I found a church I like, but I've never been a part of a proper denomination before, so I'm worried about bureaucracy." Um, David, I would say. As your last name affirms, tester. <laughs> you don't know that much about the English Anglican church? Tester. Read up on it, find out about it. Whenever it comes to a denomination and a local church, there are two research projects you have to do. Okay, they don't have to be like real research projects, but one, find out what the denomination stands for. Two, find out what your local church stands for. Because within larger denominations, individual churches are radically different. Let me give you an example. The United Methodist Church is um, spiritually in horrible, scary condition. Um, they're they're bad. They're really really bad in a lot of ways. But there are United Methodist churches that are godly, Christ focused, gospel uh, centered, and they are holding fast. In all the ways that their broader denomination in the states is not so if you were to go visit a united methodist church and you said hey mike what do you know about the united methodist i'd be like beep stay away yet this local united methodist church is awesome and they love the lord and they're the ones towing the line and they're and they're behind the scenes they're having conversations about whether they need to separate themselves from the group and how the united methodist church might try to take their own building from them if they do that i mean yeah uh, denominations So yeah, I would, I would look into the Anglican church and then I would also check out your local church and see what, what ways in which they're like that or not. Um, I don't know enough about the Anglican church off the top of my head to give you a good solid answer here. And I don't want to offer a sweeping analysis of of a group unless I feel confident like I do with the United Methodist. So yeah, do some work on that. Mary B. If Jesus died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday, then he was not in the grave for 3 days and 3 nights why is it that this seems never to be addressed i have a video on this <laughs> i'll link it below where i give you all the all the proof texts and all the specific places okay but at the moment um There are two ways people tend to resolve this issue, and both of them could work. Uh, One of them is to say that Jesus was actually crucified on Wednesday. Some would even say Thursday. And depending on how you count three days and three nights, you know, the time of day and the crucifixion, time of day of of resurrection. So they try to squeeze in actually three literal days and three nights. Um, And for this, they look at like the lunar calendar, and it matters what year. This gets complicated, but it matters what year Jesus actually physically died. Was it 30 32 AD, 33 AD, some people say, 28 AD, some people say. Um, and so depending on which year it was on, that puts Passover at a different time. And then depending on what you think the word Passover means, like in the Gospel of John, is he using the word Passover to talk about the day or the week of Passover? These are all complicated things that that make our dating difficult. Um, I'm inclined to think Jesus was crucified on a Friday. It's not like a central matter of my faith. Okay, but I think he was crucified on Friday. So I think good Friday is accurate. Well, then how can you call it three days and three nights? Well, um, my answer would be this. This is the other way to go. Rather than trying to squeeze in three literal days and three literal nights. So, so three periods of 12 hour, approximately daylight and three periods of, of night light, not light, <laughs> not light. I don't know what you call it. Um, I think the better way to go, uh, in my opinion, is that three days and three nights is a Jewish idiom. Now, idioms are interesting. Idioms are interesting. Idioms in English, we do them all the time. We say, hey, um, that took forever. Imagine if I, I so if, if they had an idiom, a Jewish idiom called that took forever. And it was, it was like in the Bible somewhere. And so Abraham finally has Isaac and Abraham thanks the Lord and says, thank you, God, even though that took forever. And then someone types on a Q&A like, Mike, answer me this. Abraham said it took forever for him to have Isaac. But it wasn't actually forever. Now, if you were not, if you didn't have the idiom in your culture, that took forever. And someone goes, "Well, it's an idiom. It doesn't mean forever." You'd be like, "Oh yeah, right. You're not taking the Bible literally now." But no, I'm saying it's, it's an actual idiom. That took forever. Doesn't mean forever. Literally doesn't even mean in, in English. We will say, "I literally died." <laughs> I I I don't usually do this. Okay, I, I try to avoid the non-literal use of the word literal, <laughs> where you say literally. And you mean not literally, (laughs) but we do it all the time. And anybody looking at English outside of our language would be like, wait, when you say I died, it means you died. When you say I literally died, it means you didn't die. What does literal mean again? (laughs) So idioms are like this. They can look a little weird, but we do have actual examples Actual examples, even in the scripture of the phrase three days and three nights, that phrase being used to refer to a time that is less than three literal days and three literal nights. How is this? How can this make sense? Because the Jews were using the term to refer to any piece of a day was considered a day, was measured as a day. Any piece of a a night measured as a night. You know, so when it says three days, three nights, you have, um, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you have three days where there's pieces of these days and they just considered them three days, three nights. Um, the example of this, I believe is in the book of Hosea, but I will link down below the, the, the specific, uh, video where I talk about, and I show all the verses and stuff like that. Um, I wonder if I could find it. Esther's one example, I think Esther is the example, and I, and I go through it in, the, in my video in more detail, but um, Esther, uh, fast for me, neither eat drink, eat nor drink for three days, night or day. Um, yeah, this is the example. Okay, so uh, Esther's like saying, hey, Fast for me. She's going to go before the king. She might be killed for this. It's a very risky maneuver she's doing to try to save her people. And so she tells them fast. And how long are they going to fast? Three days and three nights. Okay. So Mordecai went his way. And what did he do? According to all that Esther commanded him. So that would mean they fasted for three days and three nights. So that would mean after the fast, it's got to be the fourth day. Because if you have three days and three nights of fasting, then one minute later, it's the fourth day, if you take it literally. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put her royal robes on and she stands and goes before the king. So she goes fast for three days and nights. Then on the third day, which means that three days, three nights, isn't literally three days, three nights. It's an idiom for something else. Um, parts of those days. Now in the new Testament, this is parallel because Jesus is said to have been crucified a, a you mean to crucify and then th- th- you know after three days and three nights in the, in the story of Jonah that he says as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the heart of the earth so this in the in the whale or the fish or whatever so son of the son of man will be um then we've got statements in the New Testament that Jesus rose on the third day now if Jesus was crucified say Wednesday Thursday and because you, you want to get three full 24-hour periods then he would have risen maybe on the fourth day but if three days and three nights is an idiom and it means any any piece of three days. And then he rose on the third day. Now it all harmonizes much better. So I say Friday, crucifixion, Sunday, resurrection. My view. And there's my reasoning. And there's a scriptural example to show that it's a real idiom. Uh, Mora Jr. 13 says, Can you explain your understanding of theistic evolution? I saw a video by Inspiring Philosophy and have a hard time accepting this viewpoint. So I don't know... For sure, what um, Michael Jones—that's his name—I consider him a friend. I like Michael Jones. We don't. There's actually probably a lot we disagree on that are all like secondary issues, not primary issues as Christians, and which is fine. Um, But uh, so I'm—I'm not. I've even shared some of his videos and stuff, and do share them sometimes because I find many of them very helpful. But, uh, but he's like a strong. I think he's a strong evolutionist, and I'm not sure exactly what he means when he says theistic evolution. Um, but it's not an area of my focus or something I've spent enough time studying to spend a lot of time talking about currently. So, um, you have a hard time accepting this viewpoint. Yeah. So what I would recommend Mora is, um, at least, at least what I find compelling personally is a lot of the work done by the guys from the, um, the ID movement, ID is short for intelligent design. They get no end of ridicule from others Um, I think the reason why they get ridiculed so much is because their work is so scientific if you look at the work of some uh, young earth creationists some it can come off as pretty shallow as far as the depth of research and that sort of thing and others try to go real deep but but the ID movement, they're, they're actually published. They actually have peer-reviewed pa- papers and things like that. Stephen Meyer and Michael Behe, and these sorts of guys. I think you could look into their stuff. That's a different view. It's not theistic evolution. They're actually opposed to that. Um, something something for you to consider. What I would say is, more, um for a lot of you Christians, you know, listening, even even non-believers listening, how do I say this? If you want to study these things in real detail, go for it. But if you're not going to study it in real detail, then maybe it's best if you don't have a really strong opinion about it. I say this because after years and years and years of watching debates on these topics online, um, in person and different churches dealing with issues, I just say, a lot of people who believe evolution seem to believe it with very little information or understanding of how it works or what it entails. And a lot of people who reject evolution seem to reject it with very little understanding of how it works or what it entails. So that it ends up being a lot of yelling and shouting and big claims, but not necessarily like a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. And so I think you can ask yourself if this is an area that you want to focus on or not. If you feel like you have to have a resolution about it, you have to dig into it as a Christian, I would say you make your focus understanding the scripture in context. I think most people who are Christians who debate these issues don't pay a lot of attention to the verses that they are quoting on these issues. I'm just being honest, you guys, there's just a lot of heat and not a lot of light. Now, I'm not personally, um, I don't personally believe that abiogenesis took place in the naturalistic fashion where you have life coming from non-life uh, being caused by just chemi- just chemistry. Um, I'm also not convinced in common descent. I think evolution probably did take place to a significant degree. I mean just just a virus alone is evolving all the time. No no issue with that. I think that's well evidenced. But even that is a discussion I prefer not to have with people because we're all just relatively ignorant on this stuff. <laughs> Yet we all feel really strongly about it. Um I prefer to stick to the biblical discussions at least currently. That that that's my that's my my focus now and um I've tried. I've dug into some of that stuff in the past. Um yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm afraid I'm rambling a bit. I would. I would probably need some time to sit and gather my thoughts and share with you more thoughtfully. Let me just read your question again to see if I maybe offered you any help. Can you explain your understanding of theistic evolution? Okay, my understanding of theistic evolution would be this: um, naturalistic, non-naturalistic uh, progress from at least initial life, probably possibly from non-life, starting with non-life. All the way to the full diversity of life we have today without any sort of supernatural intervention along the way that's how i would describe my understanding of when someone says theistic evolution now in my view if this was true it would still be evidence for god because god would have designed such an incredible set of laws of physics and causal events from the beginning of creation that it would end up sort of dominoes rolling down the hill to cause this effect of all this diversity of life, That I would say this was caused. This was not an accident, but the, the theistic um, evolution perspective usually is like, as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe a theistic evolution. Is, no, no, Mike, we, we leave lots of room for miracles to happen along the way. That's fine. I'm sorry that I got it wrong. Um, but if you're going to say no miracles happen along the way, I think that the, then there must've been a really big miracle that happened right at the beginning. And if you say miracles happen along the way, then you don't need as much of a big miracle at the beginning, because it doesn't have to be so carefully structured to force life to happen, right? Because God's intervening miraculously and causing things to happen along the way. I think the fossil record doesn't seem to support, I think, and I could be completely wrong, and this is why I'm not going to debate on this issue, because it's just too much scientific data for me to sift through. Um, I think the fossil record doesn't seem to really support the full theory of universal common descent. So I don't go down that route. Yeah. Um, even the age of the earth is something I don't really want to debate. I, I I want to look into views and say, okay, would I be able to hold this view and reconcile that with my understanding of scripture? I'd still be a Christian on whichever view of evolution I took. Although the most extreme theistic evolution view would have me going, huh? Because I think literal Adam and Eve are pretty important. And so like you have guys like uh, William Lane Craig, who's now suggesting that we we push uh, biological atom real literal biological atom ancestor of all humans um any but we push them back um I, how many hundreds of thousands seven hundred thousand years something some really significant number at least from our perspective because he's trying to say i want to hold fast to these sort of biblical teachings but i'm also trying to see how that would work with modern evolutionary theory yeah a lot of it's over my head um whatever your theory of evolution is, I would still trust the word of God because I have plenty of ample reason to do so. But depending on how you reconstruct history, I'm going to look at Genesis and have to ask, how am I understanding this? And am I, am I understanding it correctly? Uh, Sarah Postelnik says, hi, Mike, does Luke eleven fifty 50 to 51 mean that Abel was a prophet? Thank you for your time and blessings to you and the Bible Thinker crew. Well, thank you very much. Let's look look at Luke. Let's look at look. Luke eleven, fifty and 51. The blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Um, yes, I mean, I'm reading it the same way you are. I read here and he's he describes a group all the prophets, he talks about their blood, right? And, and these are those who were killed and persecuted because they were godly. Um, and then he gives examples, Abel and Zechariah. Well, we know Zechariah, Old Testament prophet. This would imply that Abel was somehow being couched as a prophet. Um, let me look real quick at the Greek, Luke eleven fifty. The word prophet here is... I mean, yeah, it's just the word prophet. Someone who speaks in behalf of and interprets the will of a supernatural being, often rebuking or predicting events, can be used of poets who are said to be inspired by the gods. That, that's how the word was used across the Greek world, not just with the Christians. But, um, but yeah, I mean, here's here's the word prophetates. A proclaimer or expounder of divine matters or concerns that could not ordinarily be known except by special revelation. Um, yeah, how interesting. Why would we consider Abel a prophet? I I guess the two questions I have immediately when I think about this is um, do we have records of Jews at the time thinking of Abel as being a prophet? That's one question. And why so? And then um, why would Jesus call him a prophet? Was this, was this hinting at some truth about Abel that we could look back at Genesis and see it in a fresh way? And all I can think about Abel, all that we know about Abel is he brought an offering that was pleasing to the Lord, and it was from the fruit of the ground. And then his brother killed him. Abel. I mean, in a sense, Abel's life itself, it may be prophetic of Jesus. And that fits the passage because Abel is killed. Here, let me show you. Abel's killed because of his godliness. Um, so let's let's read here. Um, Woe to you for you, and Jesus is going to be killed for the same thing. Jesus is the ultimate messenger of God, the ultimate godly one who is killed for his godliness. That, that's my point here, and Abel pictures that in a sense. Maybe there's a sense in which his life is prophetic. I'm just spitballing here with you, so, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, woe to you for you build the, tomb of the pro- tombs of the prophets uh, whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. This generation. That's the generation ultimately that Jesus is talking about. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. I guess that particular woe is not really super relevant to what we're talking about but there's a sense in which Jesus is the apex of the persecution of the prophets of God, the messengers of God in his story, in his parable about, um, the, the landowner who sins, uh, he's leased his vineyard and he sends his servants and they beat one and they stone one and they kill another. And then finally he goes, they'll respect my son. And they don't. And Jesus tells the same audience that, that like all the blood is going to fall on them. And it's uh, ultimately finally, because they've, They've sinned against the sun. They've killed the sun, not, the ultimate messenger, not just those who predicted him. So yeah, maybe there's an element of something that's going on there with the life of Abel. Um, I wonder. Or maybe there's another explanation I just haven't thought of. So Bill and Shark says, or by Land Shark says, uh, Can anyone baptize or must one be a pastor? Um, This is a great question. I love this question. And I think that there is no New Testament indication that elders or pastors are the ones to do the baptizing. Not that they can't, not that it's not a wonderful thing or that people wouldn't desire for a spiritual leader in their life to be the one, but there's just no indication of that. Um, Jesus tells them, you know, go preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize. It's just something the church does. I'm totally cool with anybody doing a baptism. Personally, I think that this might be culture shock though. If, if in your church, it's always usually the spiritual leaders doing the baptisms. I'm not saying that that's a problem. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a wonderful thing, but I also don't think it's necessary. Um, there's, um, interesting historical records from the relatively early church, not the book of Acts, right? But the early church where, um, Women were being involved in baptizing. So when a woman was getting baptized, a woman would do the baptism. So here we have a woman who's definitely not an elder. There were no no women elders. Throughout church history, this is not a, a regular thing at any point. So these women are not elders. They're not pastors. They're not in those roles, but they're the ones baptizing women. Why? Because of just feeling that there was like this sort of need to have propriety between the genders. And um, and so it's not tr- not something we typically do, but this couldn't have been possible if Historically, at least at that time in church history, they thought you had to have elders doing the doing the baptizing. So it's not example in the New Testament. It's not taught clearly in the New Testament. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Philip does a baptism. I'm trying to think of specific ba- <clears throat> specific baptisms in the in the scriptures. So Philip does a baptism. But but he's he's leadership, right? Um, Paul gets baptized, but Ananias but is part of that, and he seems like leadership too. So I'm not sure if I have a specific example of someone who's a non-leader baptizing in the New Testament, but it would seem that it's a possibility, biblically speaking, and not a requirement for pastors to do it, biblically speaking, in my view. Um, oh, that was 17. Unless I skipped one. Let me see. No, I think I did them all. Okay, so 18. <clears throat> Hans H says, "How can we have a relationship with God when he doesn't talk back?" Um so I think this might be kind of a night. Na- I'm be straight with you Hans, okay? No offense intended at all. This might be a little bit of a naive evaluation of what relationship means. So let me let me put the question to you the way at least I hear it as a Christian who believes the scriptures. So How can I have a relationship with God when he fills me with his spirit? He loves me continually. Jesus intercedes on my behalf at all times that I might be able to go to the father at all times and be accepted. He promises me eternal life. He gives me gifts of the spirit, but he doesn't talk back. That's what i mean by a little bit naive it's it's like taking for granted so much that what god is god has done for you but he's not verbally just speaking to you and he doesn't tend to do this i mean there's times where god speaks to people audibly or verbally but there's lots of other times where that's not what happens but is god communicating with you i mean if you're led by the spirit there's a sense in which god's communicating with you as he leads you in doing and usually led by the spirits not spiritual gifts you usually led by the spirit is godly living so you're, someone talks cruelly to you and you think, I should be kind and gracious to them. Is that not the leading of the spirit in your life? I mean, yeah. if you're a Christian, it seems like that there's there's a good chance that there's the Holy Spirit communicating to you. doesn't make you prophetic or anything, but there's a back and forth that's going on there. When you open up God's word and you're reading it and you read the words of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles, is not God communicating with you when you go to church and you're worshiping God? Is that not relational as you worship the Lord? It, it just says, I have all this in my relationship with God, but you're not audibly speaking to me very often, or maybe never, but I'm not going to disregard everything you're doing because of the one thing that I, I'm going to say you're not doing. Um, I think that that would be unwise. Let's go to number 19. Off-brand Paul of Tarsus says, Pastor Mike, could we say Saul... Killing himself was justifiable for the same reason 9-11 jumpers were justified. Well, let me start off by saying this. I agree with you that 9-11 jumpers were justified in in jumping out of those buildings um, and, 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 and the horrific stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm among those who remembers seeing it on TV and being shocked that they even would show something like that on TV. Nowadays, with social media, it's crazy. You can see um, uh, people getting shot, murder... actually see it just randomly on on your social media scrolling around oh there's someone being killed Uh, but this was not something that was ever shown before so we saw that those that generation saw that and was like shocked um but i think they were justified because you you were like yeah the jumping out of the window actually caused them to die but their death was inevitable And imminent it was not just inevitable like one day old when i'm 90 i'll die it's inevitable i can commit suicide at 23 like that is obviously not what i'm talking about but the death was imminent inevitable and horrific the fire is coming i'm going to jump out this window because it's better than the alternative i'm only choosing between deaths i am not here choosing death over life which is what suicide is i'm I get my I get my choice of death I don't even get a good choice here I have two options I jump maybe maybe I'll even survive I've heard a story about someone surviving a fall like this I don't know but it's better than that fire that's coming right now I don't think that that's I don't think there's any guilt there I don't think there's any shame there I don't think that there's any suicide there so the question you have then is if does this relate to say Luke uh, not Luke um your verse is first Samuel 31. And Saul, <clears throat> the battle pressed hard against Saul, King Saul, and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Why? Because he's depressed? No. Because he's like, um, I, I, I feel like I just don't have any hope in my life. no. He says, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Um, So Saul knew that he was a king. He knew that they would do disgusting, perverse, embarrassing, torturous things to him because of his kingship. He knew that he was done for and he wanted to choose. I think he's choosing between deaths. I think again this is choosing between deaths. Now some of you guys were going to be like, "Mike, I totally disagree with you. Like, I maybe I'm wrong. Um, I've given this some thought. I I think there's a difference between choosing between deaths and suicide. Proper. And and when 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 the hordes are coming in and they're going to castrate you and cut your toes off one at a time and bleed you out slowly in front of your family or something like this versus a bullet I'm inclined, maybe there's something horribly wrong in my reasoning here, and I'm just not seeing it. And maybe I'll change my mind, and I'll definitely tell everybody and make a video about it if I do. Okay, well, I don't understand this to be the same as suicide. So he says, You know, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest he's uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Um, and that seemed like suicide, um, and and maybe Saul was wrong. And some of you would say, Mike, he should have just trusted God to deliver him. Except we know God wasn't going to deliver him. Saul knew it too because he'd already been told. But um, or or maybe it, maybe it's just that 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 even five minutes of continued existence, even if it's torturous and horrible and horrific, is it still doesn't justify the act of choosing this death over that death um there's this there's a sense in which we kind of do this today in modern hospitals okay there there's there's what's called a bioethics committee that they will call on occasion so um i was called to a hospital i've told this story once before but i was called to a hospital where there was an elderly man he was he was extremely old he must have been in his 90s and he was there in the hospital and he was at the point where they thought he's he's never going to wake up again he's not going to recover he's dying very slowly And we have him on a breathing machine and all this, and we're keeping him alive, but we feel like maybe, or maybe we're just torturing him, right? We have choice between deaths, really, really slow and drawn out, or we stop assisting him and he dies. So they call this bioethics committee because the family doesn't want to decide for whatever reason, his kids uh, just didn't want to be involved. So we go there and I'm part of it as a pastor because they want pastors on these panels. And to be honest, I think it's a good thing that they do because the doctors and nurses are struggling just as much as anybody else as they're dealing with these tough heavy things and it also brings a different perspective. But what was weird about the panel when I went to it was that nobody wanted to meet the guy. Um, we just looked at the papers and the doctor told us about his situation and we have got to ask questions. I was like, is there any chance of recovery? Um, how long is he like this? Well, is he aware of the pain he's in? And I asked questions like this and then I said, can I go see him? And I guess this is not normal but I went and I saw that I saw the gentleman and I, I said, it was okay if I lay hands on him and pray for him. And I prayed for him. But as soon as I saw him, I was like, this guy's in pain. And he's being, he said, he's like being tortured by the medicine that's keeping him here. And it seemed like an easy decision. I mean, easiest, I should say a clear decision, not easy by any means, but it seemed like a clear decision that it was just, you know, stop forcing his body to go through this. So that's my understanding of those things. Um, Does the scripture weigh in on this? Does it say whether Saul did something right or wrong at this moment? No, it doesn't. It just explains this whole falling on the sword thing because it relates to an event that happens with how David finds out about what happened to Saul. And and it relates to that specifically. But it doesn't explain the rightness or wrongness of this. Um, In no way am I endorsing someone saying, but I'm so depressed, I'm just choosing between deaths. Like, that is not at all what I'm saying. That's a fundamental misunderstanding. Um... I think, yeah, anyway, I'll move on. And I hope that someone understood me. <laughs> Number 20, um, Daniel Mold, Molder, Molderige, Molderige, Sorry, Daniel, I'm terrible at your last name here. Says, hi, Pastor Mike, with Easter coming up, what is something that we might overlook but shouldn't, considering that celebrating Easter might just be a yearly habit slash tradition of people? Um, <clears throat> um, hmm. I think that it might sound weird, but I think the thing, the thing that people overlook with Easter is that Jesus's resurrection is not just him overcoming death for himself, but him overcoming death for you. Those who are in Christ have no fear of death. I should say they have no need to fear death. And it's understandable to still be like, I'm still scared of it hurting. But fear of the experience of going through the hardship of death is not the same as fear of death. Let me give you an example. Let's say you were going in for an operation. and this operation, you had some sort of horrible problem in your life, but they were going to fix it with this operation. And you had total confidence that the anesthesiologist and the doctors and all that were going to do things right and you were going to come out okay. You still might be a little scared of the experience, but you had the confidence of it. And that should be the Christian's attitude towards death. The freakiest thing there is confidence, Jesus. You took the sting of death. You overcame your bodily physical resurrection is proof that I will make it through. Okay. I think Christians have to remind themselves of these things a lot because our natural human fear of death and fear of that sort of thing does reassert itself in our lives if we are not freshly thinking about the death and resurrection of Christ. So you need to be thinking about that. Uh, because it will only. Be, what, what will happen is when, when you're dying or you have a loved one who's dying, you won't at that moment go, okay, let me get my Christian worldview in place. You will just discover what worldview is already in place. And you might say, I believe in Jesus, but you gotta be more specific. You gotta believe in his death and his resurrection. His death to pay the price for my sins, his resurrection proving he actually achieved victory over death, my death, so that I am assured, so that what can man do to me? The Lord is for me. And you can persecute me. You can strike me down. You can kill me, but you've only delivered me to the one who delivers me from the death that you're bringing to me. Um, I think that <clears throat> Jesus bodily, physical, real resurrection. It is the empty tomb that it was, it was the same body, like he told Thomas, look, here's the, here's the nails, the wounds from the nails that were on the cross, this is the same hand, I am alive with you, uh, because he lives, we will live. So um, this is Christianity 101, but is it really, is it your 101 for Christianity, or is it more like Christianity is this sort of large cloud of data, but it doesn't come down to like a, a tree that has roots that are just sinking into the death and resurrection of Christ, his physical death, to die for our sins, his physical resurrection, to assure us um, that we've overcome, we will overcome uh, by by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And our testimony is not, here's the story of how I got saved. In Revelation, that phrase, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, that word testimony, I think refers to the gospel. My testimony is, I affirm the gospel. I affirm the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's all his work. I'm just trusting there's some encouraging things um <clears throat> yeah so today is good friday if you guys want more and you're you're bummed that we're ending this q a and it's only been like an hour and 40 something minutes um i'm going to link below a video that is how jesus fulfilled passover because jesus when he dies he he dies over the season of passover he shows up on palm sunday he's uh being examined by the people when they're examining the passover lamp there's like a over a dozen ways, specific correspondence ways Jesus fulfilled prophetically the Feast of Passover. And I have a video on that, and I think it's amazing, not because of me, but because it's amazing how Jesus fulfilled Passover, and I think you should check it out if you haven't seen it yet. I'll link that below as soon as I click in-stream here, and you guys can check it out. So, um, so yeah, let's pray first. Um, Lord, we are so grateful for your death on the cross. Um, it is a, a traumatizing thing to think about, but who's a lot more traumatizing for you, um, who were, was in the garden um, sweating great drops of blood because of the stress and the strain and the grief and, and the difficulty that you were under, the, the the physical burden of the cross, but but even more the shame associated with our sin to be there, not just dying, but dying as if a criminal. Uh, as scripture says, you became sin. You became the embodiment of all of our sin on the cross. We love you and we thank you for your sacrifice. We trust you and we praise you for your resurrection. Our life is in your life. And our Christianity is completely rooted and grounded in the cross and the empty tomb. In Jesus' name, amen.